0: Worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me before we begin? Our Father in heaven, thank you for these people and for these ancient words. We acknowledge that we're not always receptive to them. We can become hardened, arrogant, and resistant. So we ask that you would open us through your spirit. Give us ears to hear the story you are telling about the world. Give us eyes to see ourselves with more honesty, and you with more clarity and nearness. Give us soft and willing hearts that we would be restored and renewed in your presence. Meet with us, heal us, and change us for our good and for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hello everyone. Happy Sunday. Uh, I'm Ty, and it's really great to be back here with all of you. Um, I'm the campus pastor for RUF at USC, and uh, don't worry, I'm not asking you for money this time. But there are prayer cards, trifolds, stickers, and a newsletter sign-up sheet in the back if you do want to follow our journey at USC. But I'll be back here in a few weeks to give you a proper review of the semester, because believe it or not, we're almost done. So it's it's crazy. I'll give you an update in just a couple weeks. And let me apologize up front for my voice. I'm recovering from an illness, so things are just going to be a little slower today as I Just work through the material. I hope that's okay. But I'm just filling in, taking a detour from your series to explore the gospel of Luke together. And I I don't know about you, but I love podcasts. I'm not like a podcast producer or anything like that, but I just listen to them like all the time and probably too often if I'm being honest about it. And a few years ago, a really popular podcast was released that really shook the religious world. And it really shook me too, personally. I actually listened to the series twice because I was so unsettled by it. Because it provoked this incisive reflection uh, for our churches about how they can slowly lose their identity as a community of Jesus when they start building a movement I'm talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Maybe some of you have listened to it. So if you don't know, this podcast retells the personal experiences of the people who were just along for the ride as this church exploded from like a small, faithful church plant into a worldwide movement that literally collapsed overnight. So one interesting piece of this was how many of the pastors sensed they were somehow departing from their original vision— but they just didn't know how to course correct. They didn't know how to get back on the trail. So looking back, some of them noticed a change in themselves that made them blind to this departure. They went from patiently sitting under the teachings of Jesus to just getting to work building the kingdom of God already. And the sad and unintentional result was they ended up creating a kingdom that looked more like the empires of this world rather than the kingdom of God. It wasn't just the pastors who were guilty of this. Church members were caught up in this movement trap too, right? They wanted to run with Jesus, be productive, and mobilize others for him, but not actually rest in him. So I think this story in Luke will help us to, to stay the course, so to speak. It'll help us avoid seeing ourselves as owners who build their way into the kingdom and embrace our identities instead as guests who rest and receive the kingdom as a gift. So let's rediscover the giftedness of the kingdom of Jesus by reflecting on three themes that arise in the story. So first of all, we'll look at the upside-down kingdom, then the manipulation of kingdom owners, and then the faith of kingdom guests. So I don't know if you've heard of this strange phenomenon in L.A. called traffic, Um, If you haven't, it's this very predictable yet infuriating thing that happens every single day here, right? At every hour of the day, including late nights, weekends, and yes, Sunday mornings. It's like many of you, my response to this never-ending stop and go, that always ends up being more stop and go, right? Is rage, right? Road rage. I get road rage driving to and from and through LA, and maybe you do too. So just imagine for a moment that we got a new mayor that decided to congest our freeways even more by flipping them into London streets, you know, with a drive on the wrong side of the road. Like, just imagine doing that, like on the 5, on the 110, without warning. You just wake up one day to this crazy, impulsive, bureaucratic decision that results in even more traffic. Like, how would you feel if this happened? You would be outraged. Like you would, and I would too, and you would probably file a lawsuit for extreme incompetence or something like that, if that's even possible. So that outrage, that who put you in charge, you clearly don't know what you're doing attitude is exactly how people feel when Jesus arrives in Galilee offering the good news of his kingdom to the poor first, which is what the sayings in verse 1 refers to. So I don't know if you remember, but uh, those sayings happened when Jesus was in Nazareth and he opened up an Isaiah scroll that said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. So his synagogue audience heard this and thought Jesus identified them as the poor and freedom meant revolution against Roman occupation, But when Jesus says the poor are actually widows and lepers in Gentile territory, they try to throw them off a cliff because it doesn't match their expectations. That's the first reaction about about the kingdom of God that we get in Luke. It's rage, right? It's outrage. Who is this guy? What is he doing? He does not know what he's doing. And by the way, that's what we would do Uh, with this theoretical mayor of L.A. who doesn't know how to govern, we try to throw him off a cliff too, right? That's that's how we would react. So our story in Luke 7 fits into this larger block of teachings that actually identify who counts as the poor when Jesus offers the upside-down kingdom to them. So if you go back and read Luke 4 through Luke 7, you'll see that includes people who are sick and disabled, people who are possessed by demons, or ceremonially unclean, people with low social status, like women and children, social outsiders like those from minority ethnicities, or people who've made themselves unwanted from poor life choices. That's what it means to be poor in the Gospel of Luke. And one scholar that I read this week thinks that the kingdom of Jesus offered not just to the poor, but to undesirable people, like that translation would better capture his kingdom message. It's not that these people are undesirable to God, but they're labeled undesirable by the stigmatizing and dehumanizing social standards of their day. So when you understand Jesus's mission in this way, you get that the centurion in our story counts as one of those poor, undesirable people. Because he's a non-Jew, living in Israel. A non-Jew whose job it is to reinforce Roman oppression so the Jews pay their taxes and don't start any rebellions. So look, this guy has no social capital uh, to bargain with. He's not getting any friend requests on his Galilean Facebook page. No likes or comments on his Instagram stories and no shares of his TikToks. He's an outsider of outsiders in his social location. So Jesus' care for undesirable people like you and me is one of the most beautiful and compelling things about this man. Like, did you ever notice that Jesus had this really bad habit of inviting all of the wrong people to his parties? Like, whoever society says no to, Jesus heads straight for them and says, yes, Like, come to this party that I'm throwing. You know what? Why don't you take a place near me? Have the guest of honor seat at my table. Like, let's celebrate your arrival. Like, that's what Jesus does. Like, Jesus just can't help but to move toward all of the marginalized and unwanted and hurt people in this world. And he lifts them up, like, out of their shame and names them as his precious, beloved sons and daughters in his kingdom. In his family. Like, who does that? Like, nobody does this. Politicians don't do this. Like, politicians only ally themselves with powerful people who will protect their interests, right? They don't turn nobodies into somebodies unless there's something in it for them, right? And it's temporary at best. But Jesus is the opposite kind of king, right? Jesus does this out of true kindness, Because his default desire is to bless the poor and undesirable people. So if you feel unimportant, if you feel left out or ignored, if you're burnt out from trying to impress everyone all the time, if you feel like you've exhausted God's grace and you should probably just go crawl up in a corner somewhere, somewhere, like, please hear me when I say this. Like, God loves you. Like, God loves you first— like Jesus moves toward those kinds of people first because he notices them, because so he wants to wrap you in the safety of his love, because you're enough. Like you're enough, and you don't have to prove yourself to him. In fact, he's willing to prove his love to you by chasing you every single time you run. Every single time you run away, like the father of the prodigal son, who anxiously awaits his son's arrival. Every single day, your Heavenly Father is more than ready to welcome you home. On the other hand, you know, if you've just, like, convinced yourself that God accepted you because you're strong or impressive or successful, because you can play an important role in building his kingdom, because he can leverage your power and resources for his glory, I just remember, like, Jesus plays by a different set of rules, He doesn't privilege high achievers. God turns all of our sacred status symbols we create just like onto their heads. And he takes sides with hurt and wounded people against the winners of this world to shame their power and their pride. Because in the wisdom of God, weakness is actually better than strength. That's the upside down kingdom we're invited into. But what about these people who act like kingdom owners? And how does their manipulation block their entry into the kingdom of God? So my wife and I have been watching Suits lately. Any fans here? Any fans? Okay, you don't have to. Okay. So if you've never seen it, it's about an elite law firm in Manhattan called Pearson Hardman at first. And that only hires hotshot, Harvard-educated corporate lawyers. And one of the qualities they really bring out in this show, though, is how these lawyers actually really only care about one thing. It's not law. It's not justice. It's winning. Right? Just winning. Even when that means crossing the line and manipulating others. And even a lawyer on their own team, Lewis, gets caught up in all this. (coughs) Excuse me. Because Lewis will be the swing vote in an upcoming election. And don't worry, I'm not like revealing anything in the show here. I'm, I'm keeping it under wraps. But he's a swing vote in the upcoming, upcoming election. And uh, he, has this decide, um, he has the decision power to decide whether or not they're gonna keep the current managing partner in power, Jessica Pearson, or depose her in favor of another senior partner, Daniel Hardman. So he's the swing vote. So what does everybody do? They go after Lewis, right? So Jessica, the incumbent, sends Harvey, Lewis's rival and idol, to pretend to be Lewis's friend. until he finds out that the only reason they're hanging out is to secure a vote for Jessica. And then he's offended and clearly won't vote for Jessica, right? And so Daniel, the challenger, tries to buy Lewis's vote. Not with money, but with the thing that Lewis wants more than anything else in the world, to be promoted to senior partner. But if Lewis accepts that senior partnership, his new rank will always be called into question. It'll be diminished by suspicion and doubt because it was given to him on the eve of the vote, and everybody knows what that means. Everyone will know the real reason why Lewis was suddenly promoted to senior partner. It wasn't his skill or merit in practicing jurisprudence. It was to indemnify Daniel's power. It's like, it's messed up. It's messed up. There's an entire episode about this cold manipulation of Lewis, using him like a chess piece, right, to win an election. So that smoke and mirrors manipulation is what we see in the Gospel of Luke and, well, in our story. So the centurion innocently sends elders of the Jews to Jesus, but they take advantage of their task, leveraging their time with Jesus to execute their own hidden agenda, So, these men are Jewish patriarchs, older men who sit on the highest Jewish court of the land, known as the Sanhedrin. They're some of the highest ranking religious and political figures in all of Israel. They not only represent their people's interests under Roman occupation, but shape and guide those interests. So, they're elites, right? They're upper class Jewish elites. And Jesus is below them on the social hierarchy, Like, do you get that? He's like a wandering, traveling rabbi. So think about this. Like, if you were in the upper echelons of society, would you plead earnestly with someone who is below you? That's what the elders of the Jews do in verse 4. And would you suddenly represent your political and religious rival as a potential ally worthy of your partnership and protection? You'd only do that if your goal is to manipulate and control the situation so that it works in your favor. And that's what the Jewish elders are doing. They're acting like gangsters with Ivy League degrees and expensive suits. Because remember, Centurion is a military employee of Rome, a symbol of Jewish oppression. He's there to enforce the gospel of Caesar, right? The Pax Romana. But the Jewish elders present him as a traitor to his homeland in verse five. He loves our nation, they say, implying defection to Rome. He even built our synagogue, which means he'll probably accept circumcision to become like a true Jew. So the lieutenant of Rome is starting to appear strikingly loyal to, this, to the Jewish cause. And if political revolution really is on the horizon like these Jewish elders think, then they have found two perfect allies one Jewish radical who can rally the lower class, Jesus, and one Roman defector who can draft the blueprints of their takeover, the centurion. Do you get it? Okay, so I just want to pause here for just a minute before we too quickly criticize the Jewish elders for their manipulation of the situation. I want us to consider if it would be reasonable for us as first century Jewish people to read the Old Testament and think, yeah, God's going to free us from our Roman enemies. Like, is that plausible? Like, of course. Of course. Have you heard of the book of Exodus? Liberation is like the whole point. So the problem, though, is that these Jewish elders have turned the God of Israel into Israel's God. You see the difference there? They created an enemy out of the Gentiles when God said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the world will be blessed. But they've drawn the metaphorical line in the sand, right? Closer and closer around themselves until they're the only ones that are on Team God. It's tribalism. It's tribalism. Like, we're guilty of this too. Americans are famous for this, actually. We have a fancy new word for it. We call it polarization. But polarization is just like tribalism. So even though we live in this world of blinding tribalism, like, there's hope for us. Because the first century was just as polarized as our world, if not more so. Yet, Jesus stepped into that hyper-tribalistic world and flipped it upside down by offering the good news of his kingdom to the poor. So I think there's a way to stop acting like hostile kingdom owners to become more open to sharing it with our neighbors And the key is a kingdom guest mindset that we see in the centurion. So on occasion, uh, my wife and I will go and get fancy massages together. And there was one place in Denver, uh, that's where we lived before coming here, that went above and beyond what we expected in, like, couples' massages. They did, like, all the normal things, you know? Like, gave us warm, comfy robes to change into, sat sat us in a cozy waiting room with comfortable sofas, teas, and a fireplace, had light, serene music playing in the background, asked what kind of pressure that we preferred, which scent we wanted, slowly and deeply worked through the stress on our bodies. You guys starting to feel that massage now, right? And they even led us into a sauna afterwards so we could relax and stretch. So why am I telling you this? Because being a guest there was amazing. Like I would pay way too much money to go back there to receive their ho- their hospitality and become guests again. And like in our fast busy climb to the top obsessed culture, we think being the owner is the best because you get to choose your own schedule, make all the decisions, reap most of the profits. But if that's true, why are so many bosses at the top looking for a way down? Do you notice that? Or at least like a break, a retreat, where they can stop being the owner and be what? A guest. A guest. We do that because we recognize that being a guest is so much more fulfilling, and that's true in the kingdom of God as well. So in our story, the, king, the centurion acts like a guest in verse 6 when he sends friends to Jesus to clean up the mess that the Jewish elders have made by ma- manipulating the whole situation. So I know that we can read right over that, that the centurion sends friends, and we can just like, not think about it very much, but friendship is the image of the upside-down kingdom in the Gospel of Luke. Let me just give you one example to show you what I mean. Soon after our story, in Luke 7:34, Jesus gets criticized for being a friend of tax collectors' and sinners, in Luke 7, 34. And that's because his religious peers think that Jesus crosses too many boundaries. Like you're not supposed to walk across the Jew-Gentile divide, Jesus. They're unclean. And you're definitely not supposed to cross the godly sinner divide. Just being near them will damage your reputation. But Jesus does the exact opposite of what everybody expects of him. He doesn't care about the social stigmas that are attached to them. Because he's a friend. And in the kingdom of God, friendship is bridge building and border crossing. It's about embracing others as your equal, even when they don't have the same social standing as you. It's about finding people who value you for you, not what you can offer each other. It's about honoring people who are just as flawed as you are because both of you have been claimed by the radical love and hospitality and friendship of Jesus. So the centurion, we can tell he already lives in this upside-down kingdom. He sees himself as a guest among other guests, and that's why he has friends. And that's also why he highly values his servant, like it says in verse 2, which is strange because this servant is probably a prisoner of war or somebody from the underclass of society who's paying off their debt. And those kinds of people, like, they're not valuable. They're just dispensable. But not to the centurion. So even though this slave belongs to the underside of history, the centurion centurion doesn't treat him that way. In fact, he takes this underprivileged and disadvantaged person under his protection and care like a guardian would. I know your translation says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. In verse 7, but Luke doesn't use a typical word for servant here. He uses a word that means something more like an apprentice, somebody you mentor and train so that they actually replace you one day. Which means that this centurion has a purpose for his servant that exceeds the expectations of his status. He treats this nobody like a somebody because they're friends. They're friends. And when your self-understanding is shaped by this ideal of poorness, a poorness that places friendship at its center, it's not hard for you to see other people around you who would benefit from the love and care of Jesus. Because you just expect Jesus to show up in all of the wrong places. All of the invisible people and ugly neighborhoods and rich and powerful would rather ignore or hide. You see them as a perfect place For Jesus' renewing presence. So the centurion embodies the guest like humility and bridge building friendship of the kingdom of God. But there's one more quality, one other quality that Jesus points out that truly sets the centurion apart. In verse 8, the centurion makes a comparison between the power of his word on his soldiers and the power of Jesus' word over sickness. So here's what you have to understand about ancient medicine, because I know some of you are probably doctors. Uh, in the ancient world, there's no such thing as biological or pathological disease. Right? Illnesses are seen as both, as both physical and spiritual in the ancient world because they're caused by evil spirits or, or, or sins. So every time Jesus heals somebody, an ancient person would see that person's restored, bo- that person's restored body as a kind of spiritual release too. So Jesus' first century audience would get that his word dispels the spiritual forces of evil. They would all agree that some divine power energizes Jesus' healings, but they're just not sure if it's a friendly deity or a hostile one. But the centurion gets it, right? He has this unique insight. He says, I too am a man under authority. So he knows that Jesus has been delegated this healing pattern, this this healing power. And by the way, Roman gods don't delegate power. They just don't do that. They provoke their favorite heroes to start wars that will enrage the other gods, but they don't share their divinity with any humans. Which means that the centurion senses a new, higher power has arrived on the scene. In Jesus. And not only is this God uniquely with Jesus, but he's confronting the evil that creates disease in the first place. So Jesus listens to the centurion and, like our text says, marvels at him. And this isn't just shock. This is a pleasant surprise. Jesus finds his words so on point, he turns his round to his other followers just to make sure they didn't miss what just happened, because the centurion has just spoken the ideal words of faith. And that's the final piece of this kingdom guest mindset. Faith. The centurion doesn't have a theologically informed faith. He didn't go to seminary or learn Hebrew or anything like that. He's not a Jewish exile hoping for restoration while living under Roman occupation, He doesn't even know the origin story of Israel through God's promise to Abraham and liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt. But in this moment, he trusts that the God who is with Jesus is a good, generous, and welcoming God. A God who takes sides with the poor. A God who invites socially undesirable people as guests of honor at his table and a God who embraces hurt and wounded people as his friends. That's the kind of God Jesus has represented to the centurion. And in case you've forgotten or never met him, that's our God too, the way. That's our God too. So I want to close in a, I don't know, maybe a unique way, because this story is inviting us to become guests in the kingdom of God, to let God show us greater hospitality and give us better rest than any luxury massage in Denver could ever offer us, right? So really what we're being invited into is to receive a kingdom blessing. The the first word about the kingdom when Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So Jesus isn't saying that material poverty or food insecurity or homelessness or any other subhuman condition like that is acceptable. He's talking about the core trait that separates citizens of his kingdom from other kingdoms, and it's poorness. Because poorness is like an antidote that alleviates our need to possess and to control, alleviates our need to build our own little empires, to replace it with an openness to receive the kingdom of God with gratefulness as the gift that it truly is. So I want to leave you with a blessing to recreate the counterintuitive and upside down blessing of poorness that Jesus wants for us. So the way church, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who have a deep commitment to welcoming unwanted outsiders in the name of Jesus. Blessed are you who passionately pursue the border crossing friendships of Jesus so your neighbors would experience his life-altering love and care. Blessed are you who hope in the abundance of Jesus to restore justice and peace in disadvantaged neighborhoods first. Blessed are you who trust in the goodness and generosity of Jesus, not only for yourselves, but for your neighbors and even for your enemies. Blessed are you who are poor, humble guests of King Jesus for yours in the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for inviting us to be guests in this upside-down kingdom that you have brought to us through your Son and in your Spirit. Help us in this crazy city right outside L.A. to not chase after the things of this world, but to chase after your nearness, your warmth, and your goodness towards us. Help us to be true kingdom guests who enjoy the luxurious things of the eternal kingdom that you are building and not the luxuries that the world can offer us. Help us not to be deceived by them, but to rest with you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you join us as we worship?